Good evening. You may have remembered this if you're old enough that one of the great boxers of the 20th century, Cassius Clay, also known as Muhammad Ali, would routinely say, seemingly always to Howard Cosell, I am the greatest. You know, so many people have not had the audacity to say out loud what Muhammad Ali said, but so many have wrestled with the thought, the idea that they were the greatest. And so when we think about how it is in our society today, we have a lot of different ways to try to gauge who is the greatest. This is something that is at least as old as the first century, though we would say maybe it's as old as time. And and if you want to try to get an idea of who that might be in whatever way you want to try to categorize it, you can find those answers today. For example, Business Insider has told us with regard to the uh, wealthiest person in the world. Do you know who that is? That's a Frenchman by the name of Bernard Arnault. He is the head over a business empire that spreads across 70 brands, brands that include Louis Vuitton and Sephora. And he is $3.3 billion richer than the founder and the CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, who's worth a paltry $186 billion. Business Insider tells us, if you want to measure greatness in money, Bernard Arnault is your guy. But it could be that you want to think in terms of who is considered to be the most powerful person in the world. And if you want to try to say with regard to that who the greatest is, Forbes magazine would tell you that it's the man who runs China, uh, Xi Jinping. He is the most powerful person in the world. That second on the list is Vladimir Putin. And third on the list in 2020 was Donald Trump. Fourth was Angela Merkel. And fifth was Mr. Bezos. Then there's uh, Gallup's annual poll in which they try to ask and ascertain from American society who is the most admired person in the nation. They have a male recipient and a female recipient. And the male recipient for 2020 in Gallup's poll was Donald Trump. And the female recipient in 2020 was, for the third year in a row, Michelle Obama. People Magazine, for several years, has tried to to put the finger on who is the most attractive person in the world. And the 2020 winner is the Black Panther actor Michael B. Jordan, the most attractive man alive. You know, we we try to uh, ask ourselves... Who's the greatest? And and however you look at that, how do do you find out who the greatest person is? We we act like we we don't care about that, but doesn't it influence us maybe a little more than we would like to say that it did? This was an issue that was going on with the disciples. Jesus had handpicked 12 individuals apostles that he had been mentoring for three years. He had been demonstrating over and over again how greatness is determined. He is showing it, the one who left the eternal glory of heaven to limit himself to human flesh to live among us on this earth. He lowered himself according to Philippians chapter 2. And he's always demonstrating to them what true greatness is and they always seem to be missing it. If you look through the the Bible, there is an occasion where uh, a few of them are able to go with Jesus up on what we call the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. And they see Jesus' glory. 
And, and, and it's, they see, see it in an unfiltered way as he's up there with Moses and Elijah. And all of them, uh, as they come back down into the valley, they see this uh, boy with an unclean spirit and all the apostles see Jesus heal this difficult, unclean spirit. But their reaction defies description. After seeing Jesus on the mount and seeing Jesus heal this boy with the unclean spirit, there breaks out an argument among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Luke 9.46. It makes you wonder, were they even paying attention to Jesus? He's talking about self-sacrifice and they're jockeying for position. They have visions of grandeur, thoughts of their own greatness. I think about in Mark chapter 10 where it happens that uh, Peter says to, to Jesus, look at all the things that we have given up in order to follow you. And Jesus tells Peter and the others what he's about to give up not only for them but for the world by dying on the cross. And at that moment it seemed good to James and John. We see the Matthew's account. We have Mrs. Zebedee coming along. But in, Luke's, uh, uh, in uh, Mark's account, you have James and John being the first to speak, I believe. The other ten are upset maybe because they weren't the ones to get to Jesus first. And they say, we want you to do something for us. We want you to put us on your right hand and on your left hand side in the throne of your coming kingdom. Mark chapter 10 and verse 37. And then there's the Passover feast where Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper just a mere few hours before his uh, arrest and trial and crucifixion. In Mark, uh, Luke chapter 22 and verse 26, do you know what they want to talk about? There arose a dispute among them as to which of them ought to be considered the greatest. We don't ever do that, do we? We never uh, ask those kind of questions. Preachers don't do that, do they? Do preachers ever in history say, who's the greatest preacher? And how do we go about to figure that out? We ask that by saying, who preaches for the greatest church? Or who preaches to the most people? Or who should be considered the most innovative, the most talented among all the preachers? Members don't do that, do they? Do members ever wrestle with that as to whose money, whose influence, whose ideas ought to be considered the most important in the church? If you wrestle with this struggle of greatness, you're in good company, but I want you to see that Jesus is trying to teach that out of his closest followers. He wants them to understand truly what greatness is. And at about the time that Jesus is going to have the discussion that we saw a part of a moment ago in Luke chapter 22 and verse 25 and Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25 where he tells them that greatness comes not in being served but in serving, Jesus gives the greatest lesson on greatness that he ever does anywhere. And it's not by anything that he says it's by something that he does. You know, in John chapter 13, the only place where this event is recorded for us, Jesus understood what he was to the Father and how he had come from God and how he was going to return to God. He got up from supper and he took off his outer garments and he put a towel around his waist and he got a basin of water and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John 13, 3 through 5. Jesus is going to show them what greatness means to the only one whose opinion matters at all. 
And I think if we want to be great, and we should want to be great in God's eyes, that we need to really look at John 13, and we can see from what is said here in John 13 how we can be great in God's eyes. What do you got to do to be great in God's eyes? The first element of greatness that we see in this text is, is that you have got to appreciate time. If you'll look back in John 13 and verse 1, Jesus understands that the time has come for him to leave this world, to depart out of this world. Jesus can feel the shadow of the cross that's out in front of him in the future, and he knows that he's about to die. And in this way, Jesus has an advantage over us, because we don't know how much time we have left. We don't know the day or the hour when Jesus is going to cause time to be no more. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. But we do know that it is a precious commodity, and our Lord wants us to be a good steward of that commodity. When we think about Jesus in the book of John, Jesus always seems to see time as relevant. It means so much to him and he wants to manage it the very best way possible. In John chapter 4 and verse 35, he's trying to get the disciples early on in their relationship to look and to see how precious time is. He says, do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white already unto harvest. He's saying the time is now. In his own life. And he wants them to get that. And in John 6 and verse 38, he explains to them that he has come to do the Father's will. He is here on this earth to accomplish the Father's desires. I think it's interesting in John chapter 17 and verse 4 that you have Jesus praying that prayer. What is truly the Lord's prayer. It's the night that he is arrested. And as he stands before the Father, he says, I have finished or accomplished the work that you have given me to do. He had gone through that public ministry. He had demonstrated that he is the Son of God. He's about to give his life for everyone. And and so in the fullest and the final sense, in John chapter 19 and verse 30, Jesus can hang on the cross and he can say, it is finished. Jesus appreciated that time was a precious commodity. You know, it's probably true that in your work and your career that you have set goals and you have put things on a timetable. You have them on a time frame, right? Do you you ever sit down and, and evaluate and look at that and to see how you're doing? And maybe you plan out what you hope to accomplish in the next year, the next five years, or the next ten years. What are your goals that you have as a servant of Christ in His church? Do you have that on a timeline? Are you looking at some ways in which you want to grow, maybe stretch and grow in ways that you're not currently comfortable in doing? Maybe it's a timeline in which you see yourself very soon sharing Christ with somebody, or or maybe it is that you aspire to serve in a leadership position in the church. And so with all of that out before you, you've got to realize that you've got to put your clock on a budget. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14, Jesus says that we are to not be unwise, but wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. You are aware of what's happening with my, my brother. My brother's a great writer. And last year he uh, wrote an article that he entitled All the Time in the world. It was the title track to one of the more obscure James Bond movies, Inter Majesty's Secret Service. And the title track of uh, this movie was sung by Louis Armstrong, a great artist. And it's a very ironic thing 
that so far as we know, this is the last song that Louis Armstrong ever recorded. But he is singing the lyrics that there's all the time in the world. Isn't that ironic? Very soon he's going to have a pair of heart attacks and he's going to die. The thing is, we don't know how much time that we have left. We don't know what percentage it is that we've already used up. And it's a different number for all of us. Jesus sets the pace. He knew why he was here. And he changed the world and he saved the world in three and a half decades. And we'll never measure up to that. But we can all be using time more efficiently each and every day. We need to be praying more every day, don't we? I know that I could be praying more than I am. We need to be studying God's Word more every day. We need to be encouraging people more every day. We need to be serving more every day. We need to be sharing Christ more every day. We need to be leading our families more every day. We need to call and visit and write those who are in need of encouragement more every day. If you want to be great in God's eyes, you have got to appreciate that precious commodity of time like Jesus did. But then second, if you want to be great in God's eyes, you've got to have a lasting love for people. I love the statement that's at the end of verse 1 in John chapter 13, where it says that Jesus loved his own until the end. Now, I break that down in the immediate context, and it's really a remarkable statement even right there. Because here you have all of those disciples who are fighting about who's the greatest. And here's Jesus demonstrating greatness to them. And that's what he has to work with. And he has been influencing them for three years. But then he has to deal with, frankly, one that we would call a knucklehead in Peter. Sometimes he is always struggling to try to get it right. And here he is saying, Lord, you can't wash me at all. And then Jesus says, if I don't let me wash you, you're, not, none of, uh, you're none of mine. And he says, well, give me an entire bath. And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. You still don't get it. He had to deal with Peter all the time. And don't you feel like Peter some of the time? The Lord has to deal with you and me in the same way. And then think about this. Here is Jesus on his knees Washing the feet of Judas, who he knows is about to get up and go out into the dark and betray him and be complicit in his death. When Scripture says that Jesus loved his own to the end, he had them in mind. I believe in the further context of this that it had in mind those religious elite who were going to contradict him and try to kill him all along the way. And what about the masses, the public? He healed them. He helped them. He loved them. And they're fickle. They're changing all the time. One day they're going to worship Him when He comes into Jerusalem. And a couple of days later, they're going to cry out, crucify Him. But He loved them to the end. You want to be great in God's eyes? Love. Have a lasting love for people. To the end. You know, when I was at the Bear Valley Bible Institute, I taught a course for several years called Preacher and His Work. And in one of those units, I made the point, I called that, it's all about people. It's all about people. And I took a a thin slice of inspiration and I showed how wherever Jesus was, for him it was all about people. And if you look through Luke 17 through 19, and I somewhat randomly picked that text, you will see how Jesus was involved in the lives of people. And you'll notice that if you look at the companion text in the Gospels, it is said of each of those groups that he loved them, each of them. But you see him going from group to group in the book of Luke. 
And you'll find that for Jesus it was all about sick people. In Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19, there are these ten lepers who have no hope. They're isolated. They're outcasts. And Jesus heals them. And he tells them to go on their way and show themselves to the priest. And you remember what happens? Nine of them go and, and get, show themselves to the priest and don't turn back. But the one man, the Samaritan, comes back. And Jesus shows us that it's all about sick people no matter how they respond, knowing that there will always be some who are grateful. And then next, Jesus shows us that it's all about young people. In Luke chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, you remember that there were those who were bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples are trying to keep them away. And Jesus says, don't forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He's going to use little children even in our subject tonight. Jesus is paying attention to young people. But then you'll also notice that it's about unreceptive people. In Luke chapter 18, verse 18 through 25, there's the rich young ruler. One that we would all say we would love to be. If if, if the rich young ruler came and attended at Lehman Avenue, we'd probably all flock to him and say, Boy, it's great to have you here. We'd love to have you. Oh, look, you're moral. You're upright. But he turns out to be unreceptive. But Mark tells us that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus spent time with those that turned out to be unreceptive. And it's all about struggling people. You'll remember in Luke chapter 18, verse 35 through 43, that we find one of the most pitiful characters in all the New Testament. It's Bartimaeus, who is a blind beggar, who's in spiritual need. And Jesus pays attention to him. Of all the people that are thronging on the road, Jesus goes up to Bartimaeus and pays attention to him. It's all about lost people. One of the lostest people in the Bible in Luke 19, 1-10 is Zacchaeus. He is a tax collector, a man who should have known better, who betrayed his own people and had stolen. He, it's, it's clear in what we see in Luke 19. And yet Jesus holds out hope that something can be done with him. And then it's all about the Lord's people. All throughout Luke 17 through 19, Jesus is taking an aside from all these different groups of people and he's spending time with the disciples and he's teaching them and he's correcting them and he's helping them. And I look at what Jesus is showing me. He is showing me what it looks like. You know, some of those experiences had to be more fulfilling, had to be more satisfying, had to be more enjoyable than others of those experiences. But Jesus loved them all. Later, one of Jesus' apostles, Paul, is going to come along and he's going to talk about how important it is for us to have love. You remember what he says? He says, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels uh, and have not love, I become as a, 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 ganging, a, a noisy a gong and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of all prophecy and I know all things and have all knowledge and have all faith so that I can remove mountains and I have not love, I am nothing. And though I give my possessions to feed the poor, and I give my body to be burned, and I have not love, I am nothing. He's going to tell us what love is in verse 4 through 7. And then he's going to say, there's some these, these great commodities of faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You want to be great in God's eyes in His kingdom as well you should? Then you need to show lasting love to people. How do you make that practical? With some small, seemingly insignificant steps. In our assemblies, certainly on Sunday morning, many times otherwise, there are those that the world would categorize as lowly and insignificant. Pay attention to them. Jesus did. There are going to be those that we know in our circle of influence who are hurting, who are grieving, and who are sick. Show them love. Jesus did. Pay attention. To young people. Jesus did. 
And, you know, those folks that are lost by, in biblical terms, when we don't know, how do we know that? We need to interact with them. Not just talk to ourselves, but to reach out to them. As we do, we need to connect them to hope like Jesus did. And we need to spend time cherishing all of God's people. Jesus did. You see, we, we need to be great in God's eyes, and it takes us having a lasting love for people. If you want to be great in God's eyes in the third place, then you've got to take action. In verse 3 through 11, you know, it's notable that this scene unfolds for us. And as we look at what's happening in the text here, Jesus takes action. Somebody has said, when all is said and done, a whole lot more is going to be said than done. On the judgment day, when we stand before Jesus, he is not going to say, well said, good and faithful servant, or even well sung, or well prayed, or well intended. When we look at what happens with Jesus, look at all the action verbs. Just look in verse 3 through 5. Jesus gets up. Jesus sets aside. Jesus puts on. Jesus takes a basin. Jesus washes. Jesus wipes. Jesus goes to work. There are all these folks assembled at the table, but only one gets up and take action, and he was the greatest one. When we look in terms of what God wants from us, he wants us to be people of action. In Romans chapter 12, in verse 11, the the emphasis there is that we are not to lag behind and diligent, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Colossians 3.23, Paul says, And whatever you do, do it mightily, as unto the Lord and not unto men. As we examine the greatness of Jesus, and we see how greatness comes, we've got to take action. We've got to take it out of the realm of the talking about it and do it. So greatness. How's one great in God's eyes? Well, we get to the part we know the best. We have got to lead by example. Finally, Jesus gets up. You see the scene? There are 13 pair of dirty feet. There are 13 present, but only one gets up from the supper table and washes the feet. In John chapter 13 and verse 12, the Bible says that when Jesus had taken his garments and had sat down together with them again, he said unto them, Do you know what I have done unto you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, right, for so I am. If I then, your Master and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Uh, Behold, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his master, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Jesus is demonstrating to us that you lead. If you want others to understand greatness... You go first, and you show it. We have such a convoluted idea of what greatness is. We measure greatness in how many people work for us, or how many people answer to us, or how many people admire us. God the Son kneels down and washes feet. He's not binding foot washing on us today. What He is binding on us is an attitude of service that leads. It doesn't wait. You see, so often the world says that greatness is measured by you being able to say, What have you done for me lately? But in Jesus' eyes, it's measured by asking, what can I do for you? Some of the greatest people I've ever known in the kingdom of God are those who are looking for people to serve. And they lead out with the same kind of example that Jesus shows. I think about Isaiah and his call to be a prophet in Isaiah chapter 6. And some things had to happen in Isaiah's life. 
Isaiah had to see God's majesty and His holiness, verse 1 through 3. He had to see himself through God's eyes, verse 5. He had to pay attention to God's people, also verse 5. He had to understand and long for forgiveness, verse 6 and 7. And he had to see a world in need of his service, verse 8. You know, God holds up Isaiah as an example of greatness for us. We've got to see ourselves, see our God, see God's people and see the lost as God sees them. And when we do, we'll be an example of the believer. I look at the men who were assembled on that occasion in John chapter 13. And do you hear how Jesus ends the whole thing in John 13 and verse 17? He says, if you know these things, you're happy if you keep thinking about it. I know it's what, 635, but you you know, stay with me a little bit longer here. No, he says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Preaching is an exercise that's meant to be persuasive in its nature. It's meant to change. Jesus is preaching in two different ways. Jesus is preaching by what he says by way of explanation, and Jesus is preaching by what he does. The great ones in the kingdom of God are not seeking attention, are not looking for people to look at them, What they are trying to do is they're trying to reflect the sun. They're trying to show others the greatness of Jesus. Jesus shows us that this ought to change us. His example ought to make us imitators of him. To follow in his footsteps. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 through 25. Not just in suffering, but also in service. When we look at Jesus' example here, he shows us that greatness comes... When we understand the example that he's given to us. Those of you who like basketball, I know Kentucky basketball is big, but UCLA basketball was big for several years. And the legendary uh, Hall of Fame coach John Wooden was the one that's credited with saying it's amazing how much can be accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. That's what Jesus is trying to impress upon us. He wants us to see that it's not about us being seen. It's about him being seen. And he makes that clear by telling us we've got to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't blow a trumpet out before yourself before you give. In Matthew 6 and verse 2, he says, and don't pray loudly in the synagogues or standing in the street so that people can hear you pray and think, wow, what a great praying person that that is. Matthew 6 and verse 5. And don't disfigure your face so that you may appear to others to be fasting. Matthew 6 verse 16. And really it's not just about uh, uh, giving and praying and fasting. It's about doing your great works in secret and letting the Father reward you openly. Not to be your own press agent, but to hide behind the cross and let God's greatness and His Son's greatness to be seen. If we can fill a church with those who are servants, who really want Christ to get all the glory, it will be a great church. When when it doesn't matter who gets the credit, it's amazing how much can be accomplished. I hope that you want to be great, not to make Business Insider or Forbes or any of those lists or even People Magazine, but in the Lamb's Book of Life, to be considered great. What do you got to do? You got to appreciate that precious commodity of time. Use it more wisely. Use it more, more fully because we don't have much of it to begin with. And love with a lasting love, the people that God puts in your life. 
Every person that you see every day is someone that God has put in your life as an opportunity. Love them to the end. And take action. Let's all go out there. Let's challenge ourselves to not just be hearers of the word, but doers that take action each and every day. And let's lead by example. We can speak loudly by being a servant. Jesus was the most humble person in the room, and yet he was the greatest. Greatness in God's eyes is achieved that way. Tonight it may be that you have need to respond to heaven's invitation. We want to encourage you. It's heaven's invitation. It's not mine. It's not the elders. It's not the churches. It's the spirit and the bride who say, come. Let him that hears say, come. Whoever's the thirst, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. It may be that you need to respond to heaven's invitation to become a Christian. We'd love to unite you with Christ. To allow you to be lowered in water for the forgiveness of your sins with your believing that Jesus is God's Son and repenting of sins. And if you're a child of God that needs us to pray with you and for you, it would be our honor as your spiritual family to do that. If this is your invitation, we would encourage you right now as we stand and sing this song.